There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you only look, then you will see WCNTV Hi, friends. Thank you so much for joining me today here on WCN-TV. Pray that you had a blessed Christmas celebration, the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus. My guest today is is actually a, a return guest, a great commentary, um, books that she's written, great feedback from you, our, our uh, loyal viewers. Of course, I'm talking about uh, Dorothy Logan. This is her latest black and white, an essay on critical theory, freedom and the pursuit of happiness. And I'm going to read as an introduction the back cover. When Barack Obama was elected president of the United States, it was as if the entire nation held their breath in hopeful anticipation. Even those who did not vote for him saw an historic opportunity in the moment to heal the racial divide in the country. But instead, it appeared as though things got worse and the divide grew. If the race divide is as bad as they are insisting it is, if racism is systemic, then how are the solutions being promoted supposed to heal the divide? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? We're going to answer that today. This is a topic no one dare broach, even though it appears as though previous and sometimes similar solutions have served only to divide us further. I am I'm pleased and blessed to welcome Dorothy Logan back to the show. Welcome, Dorothy. Thank you so much for having me back. You know, it's it's a blessing and, a, and an honor to talk with you again. I, I appreciate, uh, we were conversing off air. I appreciate authors that can um, publish works on difficult subjects, but do so in such a communication style that it, it is uh, it's broken down for for the ev- uh, everyday Tom and Jane to understand. And this is one of those subjects that is uh, particularly difficult, breaking down these bigger ideas into smaller concepts. And I appreciate uh, the work that you did in this particular book. So you begin by drawing people's attention to the fact that what we are seeing um, as a national narrative is really a a collision 
or a war of ideas. And, and you ask a very pointed and very important question uh, right from the start. And, and here it is. If the racial divide is as bad as they're insisting it is, and I read this on the back cover, if racism is systemic, then how exactly are the solutions being promoted supposed to heal the divide? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's the purpose of this book right here, to show folks what those solutions, solutions that actually work as they're juxtapositioned against the solutions that are being offered um, that do not work, that only exacerbate the problem. Um, so high level, Dorothy, high level 30,000 foot, how would you answer this if someone asks you, well, how are the solutions that are being offered supposed to heal and what, what solutions are going to work? Well, the very first answer to that question is the solutions being offered are not supposed to heal the divide. They're actually intended to divide us further. And so we have to examine how they are intended to do that and then step outside the narrative, step outside what is expected um, through that division and come back to the foundational principles upon which the system, if you want to think of it that way, was founded. Yes, yes. And as so as I was reading through the book, Dorothy, this this it really resonated with me. And this is why I'm so, so happy about uh, being able to speak with you today about this. I'm in the process of writing um, a book myself that's going to cover some of these subjects. And um, the key word that that what I've discovered and I'll just I'll just put this out there so people know this will be a teaser. Um, so. Uh, Gnosticism, liberation theologies, and woke Christianity all have a common thread that runs through them. And I read that in your book. The key word here is uh, alienation. What Americans are experiencing right now, in my view, is a form of physical and even spiritual alienation. And, And you go on to say, that the ruling class actually uses alienation that they create to begin with to increase their own power and stifle opposition. Could you unpack that statement, that idea, that concept for our viewers? Well, you have to understand that this this essay was born out of the previous book we discussed, The Unraveling, The American Fabric Undone. And I couldn't include it in that book because it goes across so many of the issues. It touches on so many of the issues um, of why we're unraveling. And it is all about power. Um, And critical theory in general is all about power. Now, who is to be empowered and how do they keep their power and how do they increase their power? And how are they using the rank and file? And and through this alienation process, it, it essentially is they're telling us what to think and they're manipulating our emotions and our our goodness in in essence to bring about the evil deeds so they can maintain and increase their own power. Yes, yeah. And when you talk about and this is for our viewers when when a certain group of people talk about uh humanity Americans um whatever the group is that we are we are alienated we are we are suffering from alienation 
Well, they're, they're talking about, and this is in a, in a spiritual context, they're talking about the, or, or they're creating the context in order to offer their solution for salvation. That's, that's what I've been able to discover recently is that the solutions are all being pushed and, and uh, advertised, if you will, as a means of salvation. If we can achieve this, then, then the, the world will be right. Everything will be good. And so I appreciated that you put that in there, um, Dorothy, about the ruling class using that. Now, a couple of words that, that you touch on also, race and racism, words and, and concepts we have to be very careful with. And I'd like for you to explain why that is. So we, these words, there are certain words that evoke visceral emotional responses within people. Um, and they've been designed to do that, number one, but based on true, real, horrible things in the past. And this is part of the manipulation of those emotions we use. We throw that word out there in order to inflame those passions, in order to bring up the negative um, against our fellow man, in order to alienate one another, in order to divide each other, in order to create hostility between people. Um, and so when we think about what the, the, it used to mean something, but once it's kind of like, it's kind of that, like that expression where if everything is racist, then nothing is right. If everything, if everyone is special, then no one is. And so yeah. we, we have by dividing us into groups and by putting labels on people, which is really what critical theory is all about is labeling and putting people into groups. Is by doing that and then inflaming the fash the 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 emotions the feelings of the people who are hearing these words to act against the people in the out group or even against their own group out of the goodness of their heart or out of those emotions and race and racism are two of the most powerful words still in in the american lexicon yes yes absolutely true so you've you've divided the book into two parts Part one is is devoted to uh, critical theory. Uh, part two is is devoted to equality and equity, and we'll we'll get to that uh, hopefully before this this conversation is over. But you discuss critical theory. Um, it was important to start there. Um, critical yeah. theory, uh, and I don't want folks to to get confused. Critical theory is the umbrella under which all of the other critical theories, whether it's race or, or gender or, or there's even queer theory now um, has to do. So, so if people fail to understand what critical theory is, then they're not going to grasp any of the other like race theories, are they? No. And this is why I actually wrote this particular essay, because when an ordinary person is trying to figure out what is critical theory. And uh, immediately back when I wrote this, it was critical race theory. That was the only one people were really paying attention to. Mm -hmm. they, went they went directly there. But if anyone wanted to try to go and understand it, an ordinary American, they'd go out, maybe look something up online. There's nothing out there. There's nothing to explain what critical theory was outside. Is it a pedagogy? Is it a legal practice? Is it you know, and then you had people talking heads trying to say it's Marxist, therefore it's bad, but not explaining 
why it, or how it's Marxist or why Marxism is even bad because the ordinary American today, especially young people, they don't know that Marxism is bad. They don't understand that uh, how it could be bad, nor can they understand how critical theory is related to Marxism because there's nothing out there in the simple language of an ordinary American trying to grasp what this concept is. And when they think they know, what I was seeing on social media everywhere is, oh, it's the Hegelian dialectic, it's the Hegelian dialectic. And I'm like, oh, no, no, we cannot let this keep going. So the, even the answers available to people who thought they understood what critical theory was, is we're not, we're not adequate to address the problems with it or how to combat it because there was a complete misunderstanding or lack of understanding about what it was. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's, so I'm glad you mentioned that's a good segue into my next question. What is Hegel's now? It's not just the dialectic, but it's dialectical reasoning, Hegel's dialectical reasoning. And how does that provide, what, what is it? First of all, a lot of folks have, have heard of, of uh, Hegel, the German philosopher, but they don't understand how he developed this dialectical reasoning and why. And then the second part of that, Dorothy, and I, I can remind you, um, how does it provide a philosophical framework for critical theory? So Hegel was using his dialectical reasoning thesis, which is a current reality, his approach is confronted by an ant antithesis. And then when those, the resolution of that conflict, that becomes the synthesis, and that's the new reality. And he was using this method of reasoning to interpret the past and to understand how we got to where we are today. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of simple. And he, he uses words like the universal spirit. And we don't really know that we're engaging in this as we are engaging in the process or the perf perfection of humanity. He really is is going down that road that we can perfect ourselves. And so Marx takes this and he says he turned Hegel on his feet, meaning Hegel, I could say Marx took Hegel and turned him on his head, but he's like, no, I turned him and turned, I, I put him on his feet. I had the correct interpretation of this universal spirit and the perfection we're heading towards. And so, but to do that, it wasn't to interpret the past. It was to justify his interpretation of the past in order to set up the premises for the goal or the solution he wanted to promote for the future and to achieve the future that he desired. And so he kind of used this reasoning, turned it on its head, and then to create false premises based on to justify his interpretation and then also to justify his strategy. And that's an important distinction, folks. Those of you who have joined us here in the studio and are, are watching online, uh, Hegel's dialectical reasoning was never meant this, this, and, and you write this, uh, Dorothy, uh, in your book on page eight, the logical reasoning tool, Hegel's dialectical reasoning was never meant to be a way to project the future, but to understand in hindsight how we ended up with the understandings we have today. So that's why Hegel developed this. Now, Marx took that and he used it as, as Dorothy described there, he used it, uh, in fact, dialectical materialism. Uh, maybe we can, we can touch on that next. Uh, and, and, and all of this is, to me, is reason enough why conservatives or, 
or Christians who label uh, critical theory as, as Marxist and think that the discussion or conversation is over are wrong. We, we have to, to, to explain why, well, first, what critical theory is, why, what it's based on, and why it is Marxist and why that is not a good thing. Because, um, Dorothy, I'm sure you, you work with, with students. Um, there are a lot of young people today, friends, and, and this may startle some that are uh, in my generation, but there are some young people today that, thinks com- that think communism, socialism, Marxism, they, they, they think it's a grand idea that should be applied broadly across America. And that's scary when you think uh, a, a number of young people are thinking this way. So, so let's let's talk about dialectical Marxism or dialectical materialism as the theoretical foundation of Marxism. And and you mentioned in your book, Dorothy, and I'm on page nine, by the way. For context, communism is considered the practice or implementation of Marxism. So, dialectical materialism. What is that in in the Marxist system? So Marx is basically arguing that there, if you kind of you might have heard Marxism explained as a, the continuous historical struggle between the haves and the haves not have nots. Mm-hmm. However, when he is discussing his dialectical materialism, he says in this the oppressed someone there's an oppressed group. And in this certain circumstance, right now, this time, the oppressor is the market. Essentially, it is the the world market is the oppressor of the people. And so now we have to overturn or abolish the market and everything that is associated with it. We have to overturn the system, in other words, in order to reverse the oppression. And, And so this becomes key to his argument, this idea of communism, this idea of no personal property, which... I might be going off the rails a little bit here, but when we think about James Madison and his um, Federalist paper, the one on property, that even comes down to the very, our our, our own conscience, our own thoughts. Those are are the fundamental, we own those. We should have those protected. And it's only, so when we talk about the abolition of property, Marx wants to overthrow that, that too. You should not have your own thoughts. You should not have your own conscience. We're going to tell you what is right, what your values are, what is good. And then we're going to reverse the power structure so that what you believe, what we've told you to believe and what your values are, they are in charge of the people who were oppressing you through, in this case, the world market, but it could be the oppressor could be the system or, you know, white supremacy, or it could be um, God or what, whatever the, the oppressor, the oppressor is can be put in and as a variable substituted for that variable and come up with a strategy to overturn that oppression. Yes. Yes. So, so friends follow, follow this, uh, this thinking now Marx used dialectical reasoning not just as an interpretive tool but as a means to manipulate information to achieve the future that he desired now that is a key to understanding the connection you write on page 11 and i'm just going to read this i thought it was was a great section i'm going to read this dorothy um Here is where the dialectic becomes strategy for the future instead of interpreting the past. First, Marx's thesis is that the market enslaves the masses. 
if you can imagine that. The free market enslaves the masses. Secondly, in his antithesis, reflects what is necessary to pursue a strategy, not to interpret how we got to the enslavement of the people by the market, but how to pursue a strategy to overturn that. Marx's plan, his antithesis movement, is to abolish the market. As you just said, abolish private property and overthrow the capitalists. And every time I read that kind of thing, Dorothy, I just shake my head and and laugh, a sad laugh, because Marx and Marxists today would have you believe that that uh, destroying capitalism, taking taking power away from the greedy capitalists and placing it in the hands of the 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 altruistic central planners uh, will bring about a just and fair society. And, and really what you've done is you've just taken it away from from one group and given it to another. And it's going to be even worse, isn't it? Absolutely. And we might get to this when we talk about um, equity later. But when we, when we think about communism or even Marxism before we get into implementation as it was done in certain countries, you have this I, idea of you need central planners to um, dictate. So not that the masses might be enslaved by the market, but once they overturn the market, they're just going to be enslaved by the central planners or, or you know, by this, by the next system. And so it, it's a, it's a, a bad strategy, in other words, to free anybody because it actually enslaves them under the next tyrannical movement that, that replaced the previous one. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Dorothy, <laughs> I know you've thought about this too, but with all the examples uh, of the failures of Marxist theory and the practice of Marxism, which again is communism, with all the examples for the last couple of centuries of the utter failure, the, the, the murderous outworking of Marxist theory, why does it still have a foothold in America? There's two reasons. One is that it it has a foothold in all of our institutions. It might have started in academia, but thinking about 50 years ago, all of those students that were immersed in that and learned a certain way, the young people today, they encounter this way of thinking everywhere. In, in not just social media where we, we believe most of them get their information and their ideas from, but yes, in the university classroom. And then those university, um, students, they go and they become K-12 teachers, they become lawyers, they become journalists, they become um, judges, they become, and so it's, they become marketers, they're in advertising, they're in film industry, they're in our entertainment industry. So for the last 50 years, we've produced an entire generation who is now perpetrating the, the message throughout all avenues of society. The, it, it is everywhere. The message is everywhere and this way of thinking is everywhere. And then the second reason why is because they truly believe as quote unquote progressives. And again, this is where it relates back to Hegel and the working out of the perfection of the human race. These Marxists, again, they do not think it's bad because they just believe every, every attempt at, at, that has ended in failure is a failure forward. We will get it right the next time. We have discovered that this is not the way, so we can check it off the list, like Thomas Edison and the light bulb. We are failing forward. Next time will be better, and we're always progressing in a certain direction. Wow. 
<laughs> yep, that's exact. And and you hear them say things like that. Well, it just hasn't been perfected yet. So, so where we're at then, critical theory is a power dialectic. We've we've talked about what dialectic is and Hegel's system and how Marx has uh, Marx turned that around and used it for his own purposes, his own theories. Um, it's a critical theory. Can we say that it's a strategy and a plan to reverse power or or simply a, a plan to destroy what is and create a new system of power controlled by by those who allegedly have no power now? It, is, is that a fair description? Yes, I do call it a strategy for power reversal. However, the masses, the masses believe that they will be the ones in power. Uh, that's never how it actually happens. Um, so they, I, they, I don't understand why they keep being deceived over and over where they can't see that this is how it's going to be. I even put in there as the example, after the 2020 elections, the um, BLM wanted a position in the White House. They wanted a part of the administration and they weren't given if that wasn't given to them. Um, they're like, well, we did our part. Where's our reward? Now, and those were leaders in the BLM movement. Can you imagine the rank and file? We did our part. Where are where's our reward kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And so, but but it's I call it a strategy for power reversal, but really um the critical race theory and is is a, a perfect picture of this because they tell us what their goal is and it is to tear down the existing system that is the goal what's going to replace it well something better yeah talk about <laughs> talk about vague on the details but but what we see manifesting from uh critical theory advocates proponents and those that are uh boots on the ground so to speak isn't anything that's going to work for America or any nation for that matter. Um, chaos and lawlessness is, is not a, a recipe for peace and prosperity. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> so you, um, you give us an example uh, in the book, page 14, you talk about critical, critical gender theory. And I'm wondering uh, based on what we've already talked about and how you've explained things to our to our viewers, if you could walk us through how this works using critical gender theory uh, as an example. So in critical gender theory, the stated thesis is this idea that there is male domination. And so the antithesis, and I kind of differentiate that from the antithesis, because the antithesis is the, the negative um, value of, of the thesis. And so we want a a movement that is anti-male. We're not saying it's a female-driven, female domination movement. It's simply an anti-male domina domination movement. So it, with it, the express goal to wipe out essentially masculinity and maleness and everything that is surrounded with the patriarchy and everything that you can point to. I mean, we've watched it happen incrementally over the years um, where you know, you have, oh, the pink tax, you know, women pay more for, for their products or women don't aren't paid a fair wage. And so they, again, play on the feelings and the emotions of the people in mm -hmm. order to introduce this idea that, well, 
there is no such thing as masculinity that isn't toxic. All masculinity is toxic. You yes. can't have healthy masculinity. There are no roles um, reserved for only men. We we must invade all the spaces you know um, uh, that are reserved for men. But it's more than that because I talk about and you were talking about queer theory as well earlier when mm -hmm. we were talking beforehand. And this idea is also that it's not that we're going to have female domination now. We're not going to have a tyranny that is dominated by women. We're not going to have this matriarchal society that's oppressing only men. No, we're going to have a system, if this is successful, that subjugates masculinity and maleness and is totally wants to eliminate or abolish this idea of maleness, which is why the transgender movement fits so well because men can become women and women can be better men than men ever were. And so what we have is a, an erasure of, of what is what is masculine, what is a man and and we're moving in the right direction toward abolishing masculinity and abolishing maleness. Yes, that's that's and this is this is very, very important and, and I'm going to read a paragraph uh, under that. Um, section on critical gender theory. Um, so this is what you wrote, Dorothy, page 15. Folks, listen to this. She says, think carefully. Why is transgenderism so important to the cause? Why is homosexuality so important to the cause? Some argue that the end goal is to eliminate differences between the two genders, but that is not the end goal. The transgenderism movement birthed out of the successes of the homosexuality revolution, seeks instead to eliminate men, at least as a concept. The movement attempts to demonstrate that men are completely and utterly unnecessary. Women can be better men than, than men ever were, and men, well, they can be turned into women. The, the synthesis, the goal, is to eradicate all maleness. This is also evident in the argument now being made that all masculinity is toxic masculinity. And so, therefore, the antithesis is a push against maleness. That is so very important to understand these distinctions. And, friends, I'm telling you, if you'll invest in this book, and you can go to uh, Dorothy's website. Is that up, producer? Thank you very much. Uh, freedomacademy.com. Dorothy.com. I think that's the address. Is that correct, Dorothy? Freedomacademy-Dorothy.com. Okay. Freedomacademy-Dorothy.com. You can get uh, Black and White, the book that we're discussing now. You can get the, the previous book that we Dorothy and I chatted about, The Unraveling. That was a very good book um, there on that website. And uh, and you can delve into this, take as much time as you as you need to, to understand these concepts. Um, very, very important work. So with this understanding, then, Dorothy, you take readers into a discussion of critical race theory. Now, the stated thesis of the group power dialectic, and I know these are big words, folks, stay with me. The stated thesis of the group power dialectic of critical race theory is, you ready? Because you've heard this, you've heard it again and again and again. It's white supremacy, systemic racism, white supremacy, systemic racism. That is the stated 
thesis of the power dialectic of CRT. So what follows from from this, Dorothy, from, from that thesis of white supremacy, systemic racism? Well, we are confronted with the fact that we have an entire history based upon the thoughts and ideas and documents and and wars of old white men, right? And so we have this idea that while the Constitution was written by white people, the um, the idea of Christendom and all the values that underpin uh, Christendom, the Judeo-Christian values of a work ethic and you know, timeliness and merit, and then the history of war and what those wars were fought about and how the um, different development of our culture to the point where it is, it's all based on racism and white supremacy. And therefore the entire thing, all of the underpinnings of what makes the American culture has to be erased, has to be destroyed, has to be overturned, has to be eliminated. And that's why they're saying, you know, there's this kind of fight between the Lincoln Project or the the 1619 Project, or like yes. we're going to rewrite history. We're going to rewrite it correctly. We're going to mm-hmm. rewrite it so you know the good comes not from white men whatsoever, and that it's white white everything white is bad. And so it's it's not it then bleeds into every area of life, meaning. It has nothing to do with the skin color of the person making the argument. It has everything to do with the argument being made. And so it, essentially, if you believe in the foundational principles of the country, you are white. If you believe hard work and in hard work and merit, then you are white um, because the system is white. And so all the things that make up the current system have to be eliminated. So they're chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, and they can accuse anyone no matter what their cultural background or or lineage of being white and therefore in the wrong group who must also be destroyed personally yes that is that is so true first everything white is automatically bad that's mm-hmm. that's covered under white supremacy systemic racism but friends it does not end there that's why uh, advocates of critical race theory will will point to people like tim scott a, a, a Congressperson and 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 Larry Elder, and they'll call them white or 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 a white supremacist. And these are black men, but the fact that they espouse ideas that critical race theory says are part of the systemic problem, they're white. And this this even goes. So you remember when. Uh, we had all the riots and the businesses being burned down a couple of years ago, and and many of these were black business owners. Well, guess what? It didn't matter. It didn't matter that they were black business owners because they were part of the system, part of the white system. And so the the rioters, those that, that burned these businesses down, they thought they were in the right because the entire system needs to be burned down. And I'm going to read something here again. Uh, Dorothy, you sum up critical race theory as well as anybody I've read. Uh, here's what you wrote on uh, on page 18. Critical race theory is not about equality nor is it about diversity or inclusion. Now, there's a couple of buzzwords that we hear a lot about these days, and we're going to get into that 
um, and discuss that as well. But again, critical race theory is not about equality, nor it is about diversity or inclusion into the American dream. It is not about equal opportunity. Let that one sink in. It is not about equal opportunity. It is not about individual rights. It's not about due process. It is not about individual success or even quality of life. It is about bringing the entire system down. That's what it's about, friends, bringing the entire system down. Therefore, groups like Antifa, they're not anti-fascist, but they're actually, and and I loved how you made the distinction here, Dorothy, and I'll let you speak to this. Antifa, they're not anti-fascist. They're anti-thesis, not antithesis, anti-thesis, which means they oppose individual liberty and freedoms. They want what people think they oppose. How can that be, Dorothy? Because they've taken control of our language, number one. But I really, part of writing the book was also to have, give people the opportunity to start thinking about current events and things they thought they knew from a different perspective. Like what, what if we look at um, Antifa, anti-fascist as being the anti-thesis, is a fascist anti-thesis. And so there are so many people out there who don't understand how they can be fascist if they're saying they're (laughs) anti-fascist. And so, because they, they've taken control of the language. And that's why I said this kind of was too, this, this, essay took from too many parts of the other book that it had to be pulled out um, because this idea of language and this idea of controlling how we feel about things through our language, um, they've really mastered it. However, there is an absurdity behind it, which is also part of this essay. One of the problems with the theory is that when you take it to its inevitable end, it is totally absurd and the absurdity becomes so obvious to anyone who's willing to go down the road all the way to its inevitable end. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going, so, well, why don't we just segue into that right now? Um, The idea of equality of opportunity. um, Well, that's part of the American system, but to critical race theorists or critical theorists, It's part of the system, and that's a white system, and so that needs to be destroyed. However, this shines a light, and Dorothy, you you use the right word, absurd. This shines a light on the absurdity of uh, critical theorists, critical race theorists, but it also helps us, and this is uh, page 19 of your book, this also helps make sense of why criminals are their heroes. I'll say that again. Criminals are their heroes. Now, most of America is scratching their head and thinking, but this guy, a multi-felony convictions, drug addictions, and in fact, was, was, was high on drugs uh, when he was killed. How can these people be heroes? Well, the answer is very simple. What is it, Dorothy? Because they're anti-system. Um, there's nothing more anti-system than a criminal. And so when you see, when you see statues going up of criminals 
simply because they're criminals. It makes no sense and it is absurd, but there is nothing more anti-system than a criminal. When when the police say stop, you go. When the police ask you for your, your ID, you say no. What and and I don't want to vilify the police or vilify, you know, but it's essentially no matter what they say, no matter what the the state or the system tells me I should do, then I'm going to do the opposite. But before that, they've already broken laws. They've already rejected the validity of the system by breaking the laws therein. Yes. Yeah. So that being the reality of it. Um, well, here's another example. Uh, how long did we hear and how many people actually followed through or municipalities, CT advocates, uh, uh, advocating for abolishing the police. Well, well, that's, that's absurd. If there ever was something that's absurd, that, but then, but then when they, when they received the pushback, then all of a sudden, okay, so, so we're going to move from abolishing the police. We're going to move to defunding the police, well, which is also not, not workable for a number of reasons. And now, so, so people have, uh, maybe, maybe you're familiar with it, um, Dorothy, but there was one city that actually did abolish their police, and then they asked for volunteers to be peacekeepers or civil something or another, and that was a train wreck. didn't didn't work at all. Um, but my question is this: How should we take advantage of the absurdities like these, and 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 open that door for conversation, or or do you think it's hopeless? Well, it's it's never hopeless. In fact, I believe this this book ends with a lot more hope than the other one, the other <laughs> one was. because the the people that they want to take liberty from, they'll never be able to take it. But when it comes to the absurdity, especially the police, right? We we saw um, push not just pushback within the communities where they were saying we need to abolish or we need to defund, but the other side can say, okay, we can take advantage of this. That you're not going to you're going to abolish your police department. We'll hire them and we'll give them higher pay and we're going to fund our police department more and we're going to bring law and order and we're going to treat these people with respect. We're going to actually implement programs that help the community, that help everyone in the community. We're going to implement um, training programs to avoid the catastrophes in the past and these and any good police officers. We will hire them because you don't want them anymore. And then you see the which communities are improving and which ones are not. And so then it it puts a highlight on for the ordinary American, the ordinary person saying, okay, that was absurd and you can't deny it anymore. And there's been kind of a flip. We're like, okay, no, we need to refund. We need to overfund. But again, because that's a problem with the theory. The theory disproves itself while trying to prove itself. And then this absurdity allows more people's eyes to be opened to the failure of the theory. Yes. Yeah. Well, here's uh here's a subject that near and dear to me as a pastor. Um, how do woke Christians aid critical theory and critical race theory or, or critical gender theory or queer theory or whatever the case might be, woke Christians are not um, are not actually helping what the cause they think they are. They're actually working against it. So there was this movement um, 
in the Christian community, in the church, idea of social justice. Like we're going to help the poor. We're going to feed the hungry. We're going to clothe the the homeless. We're going to visit people in prison. And we're going to be doing this as, as a church, as a, as a the body of Christ. We're going to be Christ. That seems like a really great um, push, a, great, a really wonderful movement. It's something that Jesus called us to, right? His, his um, Sermon on the Mount, he actually talked about this. It's like, so how can you go against that? However, when we talk about, well, what does social justice mean now? And and does that mean turning against truth? Does it mean um, devaluing people? Does it actually mean the opposite of what was intended by Jesus's words? And so when you have um, white guilt or you have the men hating them, men hating men, and you have all this these movements moving forward, you're rejecting truth. You're not calling on to, you're not calling on the actual to aid in the community and to help the poor and feed, you know, the sick and visit the sick and those in prison. Instead, you're giving them the wins. You're like, say, yep, we were right. You are evil. We are in the right. And so thank you for that win. And you've given us justification and validation so we can push forward and move into more spaces because now even God agrees with us. <laughs> yeah. Well, critical theory, and this is something that I see constantly as, as you do, um, relies heavily on constant reinforcement of this idea of oppressor and the oppressed, of victimhood, of, of groupthink, of um, identity politics, and a whole host of other things. But as I'm watching all this, I'm reading your book, I'm watching what's going on and remembering what's happening and it has and is in our nation. I'm it, it's it's almost like the CT is on life support. I don't know how much longer it can hold on. I mean, it just is it is not rational, logical. Um, it's it it has too many contradictions, and and when you push back against those, there there's no defense for it. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Dorothy? Well, this iteration might be failing, but we have to remember it's always a failure forward. We figured out another way it's not going to work. And every every young person has been living and being taught this way of thinking their entire lives. So I could bring up I don't know don't know if we want to get into it, but if we even look at what's happening in Israel today, right? We have um the October 7th and then we have Gaza we have the Palestinians, we have Israel, and now we have a lot of hate going on against um, in among the young people. It was amazing. October 8th, there were signs and protests all ready to go in support of the Palestinians, and they use this idea of critical theory. There are two groups. You can only belong to one group, and you, one must be the oppressed, and one must be the oppressor. And so we DEI offices might be defunded in all these businesses and organizations, but the way of thinking is not dead. And it amazes me. I, I, I had a webinar myself, and I explained the how the fallacies behind the entire argument um, that of this idea that the God, people living in Gaza, these Palestinians are oppressed and they're trying to, and, and the Israelis, the IDF is committing genocide against them. All mm -hmm. right, let's look at the definitions of these words, right? It took me very little time for everyone there to have their minds changed. But yeah. see, that's really important. They were believing that yes. the Palestinians were oppressed and that the IDF was 
intent on genocide. And so we really have to wake people up. And, yes. and so we, they failed. This might be failing. It might be on life support this iteration. Now what's going to be the next iteration? We have to be thinking ahead because they always are. They're ready for the next salvo. And um, as soon as we start to answer the previous one. Yeah, yeah, good, very good point. Uh, moving on then to part two of your uh, book covers the subjects of equality and equity, equality and equity. Um, wh what is meant by by those words? What's meant by equality? What's meant by equity? And and then um, how does critical theory use equity for its purposes? So I in the book. I use the definitions of, of the proponents of critical theory because I'm, I think everyone should understand what we're talking about and be on the same page to move yes. forward. So when the definitions by the proponents of critical theory, essentially equality or equity is let's being fair. We need fair outcomes. We need to give everyone what they need to live full and healthy lives. That's, you know, this is what it is. This is what equality is. This is what equity is for everyone to reach their full potential. And equality gets it wrong, says the proponents of equity, because they want to give the same things to everyone to achieve a fair outcome. And that's not, that doesn't work. Equity seeks to give everyone what they need to have a fair outcome, not the same things. There'll be different things. But the problem with this is that they're, they are lumping in equality and equity. These are both bad definitions because mm -hmm. what it, 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 giving equal things for outcomes is all about outcomes. It's not about equal respect. It's not about equal rights. It's not about, um, the opportunity, equality of opportunity is all about the end outcome. And equality, according to the proponents of equity, gets it wrong because in their attempt to be fair, some people get more than they need and other people get less than they need to achieve a fair or equitable outcome. Um, I do want to point out, and this is where I was going earlier, this is, they if they believe that's even possible, this is the central planning of happiness. No longer the central planning of, of goods and services from a central authority, but it would necess necessitate the central planning of happiness. We know better than you what will make you happy. We yep. know what will, will help you reach your full potential better than you do. They they're taking all, they're taking away that last bit of property, right? Your own thoughts, your own pursuits, your own conscience, and they're replacing it with a central authority. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. The key key thing to remember, folks, and I would encourage you again, uh, get Dorothy's book, Black and White, an essay on critical theory, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. You can get that on Dorothy's website. Um, the producer has it up there now. Um, it, well, there's Book Baby. You can get it there. I'm sure it's on uh, Amazon as well. Um, yep, buttons there to purchase from Amazon. FreedomAcademy-Dorothy.com. Um, equity is about outcome, and and I've I've noticed in the last year or so, Dorothy, that the conversation, the buzzwords have changed. Equality is out. Equality is out. Equality is uh, part of the system. Equality is is uh, white supremacy. Equality 
really is about protecting everyone's right to pursue their own happiness. That's foundational in the American um, philosophy of, of freedom and liberty. Equity is, is a foreign concept. It means they are going to manage, they're going to govern, they're going to dictate outcomes. Um, and that may mean that you get nothing while someone else gets uh, everything that they need. Very, very bad, bad way of thinking. Um, diversity and inclusion. Two, uh, two buzzwords we hear every day today. The true diversity, true diversity has to do with ideas, right? Skill sets, talents, opinion, style, pursuits. But as I look at, at America today, especially corporate America, the idea of diversity has been commandeered and it's really been used for what I see amounts to anti-diversity. What do you think? Absolutely. In fact, we, we've always had voluntary segregation, but now when we think about diversity, uh, we have people of color only parent meetings or people of color only uh classrooms that was a big one i couldn't i couldn't believe that or mm -hmm. the the uh, was it boston the city council members only people of color are invited to the christmas this particular yes. christmas party you know so we have this idea of well diversity in is again the opposite they flipped this word on its head again and essentially it's not about diversity of talents gifts abilities it's not even diversity of ideas in, in the marketplace of ideas. It's not, there's no diversity in the marketplace of, in the marketplace. We want to make sure that you will segregate again. It, it's gone the exact opposite way of what they intend. That's why I said the solutions do nothing to solve the supposed problem. In fact, they emphasize and they reinforce the problem to the point where we, again, produces suspicion, hostility, and creates further division. And so there's no, there's no um, diversity, nor is there inclusion. In fact, it's all about exclusion. If you don't belong to my group, if I'm not, if you don't belong to my group, you belong to the other group, and now you're my enemy in everything. You're part of the system. You are my enemy. If you're, if you are and it, but it works the other way too. People who are trying to defend the system, they look at the people who are trying to destroy the system and say, yeah, we can't have anything in common with each other. And it, it drives the division deeper and further and pulls the fabric of this country apart. That's, that's exactly right. Well, you conclude uh, your book. The conclusion is liberty, equality, and fraternity. What do you want people to take away from this book as they finish it up? I want them to understand that when we think about the way we want, wish our country was, or we want to bring it back, we have to start with ourselves and then also in individual relationships. And then again, I do this in all my work, lean into those um, civil society associations, you know, your voluntary organizations, your friendships, your family, and places where you can find moral authority outside of what the narrative or the government or the people pushing these movements tell you, you should um, find that moral authority. Yes. Yes. Amen. Friends, it's been a conversation with uh, author Dorothy Logan. The book is Black and White, an essay on critical theory, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. 
encourage you to go to Dorothy's website and get a copy of this book. It's available on Amazon, uh, other book sellers. You will be well served to read it and digest it so that you can understand to have an intelligent conversation with someone that may be of a different opinion on this subject than you are. We will move forward with with uh, maintaining our freedom and liberties as we continue to have civil conversations with people on a very difficult subject. Dorothy, I really appreciate you joining us again here on WCN-TV. Thank you once again for having me. You're very welcome. Friends, that's all we have for you today. Thank you for sharing this program, this conversation on your social media platforms, telling your friends to come and watch it here on WCNTV.net. We'll be back again next Tuesday with another show. God bless you. See you then. Thank you.